Ethan, his willingness uh, to fill in as I was at the uh, Church of Mickey Mouse uh, last week with my family celebrating a uh, vacation with my in-laws. We had a great time, 85 degrees in Orlando, and uh, we hated coming back to this kind of garbage that we've been dealing with. But we come to now the fourth statement that Jesus brings. The fourth statement that Jesus brings on the cross of Calvary. And as we've been working through these, uh, each of these uh, statements, we have learned something about Jesus or the nature of God, but we've also learned something about who we are and our need for grace in a time where we find ourselves as sinners. And we've also said that we wanted to spend time each and every week celebrating and commemorating that cross of Jesus Christ by coming around the table, and we'll be doing that again this morning. So I'd ask that you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word and reading. Uh, let me read from Matthew chapter 27, verses 41 through 49. This is what the Word of the Lord says. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who we talked about a couple of weeks ago, who were crucified with him, also, healed, uh, also heaped insults on him. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. Turn in your Bibles uh, just a book over to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, verse 31. We're going to read yet another gospel account of this text. Mark 15, 31 through 35. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also uh, heaped insults on him. Now Mark says that the sixth hour darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Let's pray for God's blessing this morning. Father God, we come to a text that is an amazing text. Oh, that you would be forsaken. We don't understand this, Lord. We can't comprehend this, Lord. The righteous one, the one who has perfect intimacy with the father. And yet we see the father forsaking the son. Oh, Lord, that we would grab a hold of this truth this morning, that we would begin to understand that in all ways, Jesus has uh, felt the pain 
of being forsaken. And Father, I pray for those today who are in a spirit of feeling forsaken, that they would look to the cross, that they would look to the one who was crucified, to the one who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, Lord, let our hearts be turned to this theme this morning, that we would be changed, that we would be renewed, and in doing so, that we would bring glory and praise to your holy and precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Deserted. Abandoned. Renounced. To be left altogether alone. Words that sum up in some people's lives the very feelings that they feel this morning. Words that conjure up dark moments in our lives. Times that bring forth depression and agony. There's no one here for me. They've all left. I'm all alone. I'm all alone to deal with this thing called life by myself. This isn't anything new. The men and women of the Bible dealt with these issues as well. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Gideon, Elijah, Jeremiah, and even King David all struggled at times feeling alone. And yet Jesus says he was forsaken. All those words define this word forsaken. The word forsaken literally is described as the most loathsome word in all our vocabulary. No one wants to be forsaken. Even the greatest introvert in our midst this morning has no desire to be forsaken. And yet that is what we see this morning from our Savior. This word has an origin that literally means a hot, unbearable hurt and pain. These are frightening words that we see our Savior sharing with us this morning. And yet some of us this morning are feeling that same way. You feel forsaken by God. You feel like God has left you. That even though the promises of God say He will never leave you nor forsake you, you feel like you're all alone. The bills are piling up. The kids are running amok. Your life is feeling like, you know, I've trusted in Christ, but but what is He doing for me? I'm all alone. I've got no one to turn to. Some of you have been forsaken by parents. That literally your parents have said, get gone. Go on with your life. We, we don't want to have any time with you. We don't want to spend any moments with you. Just move on. We're done with you. Others have been uh, forsaken by their spouses. Of course, in America, we see that 50% of marriages are being forsaken for other relationships, other pursuits. And we see the baggage and the turmoil that comes from the issue of divorce. Forsaken by friends. Maybe you've been deserted by someone you love. Forsaken by family. Whoever it is, this issue of being forsaken brings forth feelings of loneliness, pain, shame, depression, agony, bitterness. And they've even led many to throw in the towel and give up. And yet we find our Savior this morning. On the cross, purity and holiness incarnate. And he's lost his friends. The people around him mock him. And the one that he would trust in, the one he would rely upon, the greatest 
friend and greatest one he would have, the Father, also departs. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want to give you some context this morning to understand this. This is a tough message to preach. I know we've got a great celebration this morning. And this is a tough one. And I want us to not get our minds on what's going to happen in the next couple hours. I want us to center our minds on what's going to happen this morning in this text. So let's get a context this morning. Before we even get to our outlines, I want to write write down eight characteristics on the side of your outline about this shout from the cross. First of all, it's an announcement. The book says that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This isn't some whisper. This is an announcement to his Father. He's crying out to his Father in a loud voice. The next thing we see is it was written or it was announced in Aramaic. It was announced in Aramaic. This is the native tongue of Jesus Christ. This is not Jesus speaking in Greek or Hebrew, but Aramaic. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. This is the Aramaic phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The next thing I saw is these are ancient words. These are ancient words. We read this morning, Beth did a fabulous job reading from Psalm 22. One thousand years before Jesus Christ, we see King David announcing, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's no doubt this is prophesying as we continue to read Psalm 22, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. These are ancient words that Christ is announcing. These words are awkward as well. They're awkward. Martin Luther, when he came to this text, the great reformer says, we encounter God forsaking God. Who can apply this? Who can understand this? These are tough words. These are words that we should look at and we should not gloss over, but we should walk and tread lightly in this passage because we do not know the full ramifications of what this phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, actually means and the the full ramifications of it the next thing i saw was this was at the apex of his suffering this is where jesus is at the lowest of lows where the highest of highs of suffering are taking place everything in jesus's life if you will has come crashing down from a human standpoint and jesus finds himself looking to the heavens and seeing his father in heaven turning his back on the son And he comes to the lowest of lows because of the suffering, which we'll talk about in a moment. The other thing we see is these are this is an arduous term, arduous phrase. What that means is literally uh, the righteous being forsaken for the unrighteous. That's hard for us to understand. I want you to understand something this morning. God was forsaken. Christ was forsaken for you and me. He lost out on the fellowship with his father because of the sin you and I commit. Those words should sober our hearts this morning. Those words should rattle us out of our slumber. Those words should push us to personal holiness. Why? Because our Savior, the one who is completely pure, the one who is completely righteous, his father The righteous Father in heaven turned His back. Why? Because He who knew no sin became sin on Tim behalf. These words should sober our hearts this morning that we would be reminded of what Christ has done for us. Finally, these are astonishing words I wrote down. Astonishing words. 
this side of glory, this side of heaven, we will never fully comprehend what transpired in that moment of darkness when the Father forsook forsook the Son. So that gives us a context this morning. Let's get to our outline. As we observe this cry from the cross this morning, we see a couple things. First of all, we observe a season of darkness. We observe a season of darkness. There are two things that this darkness involves. Even again, before you get to your outlines, you're going to say, man, this is going to be a long message. I'll move quickly. Even, uh, even with this darkness, we see two things. Number one, we see, first of all, it involved the sun. Write that somewhere in your outlines. The sun, S-U-N, if you don't know how to spell. Hooked on phonics worked for me. The sun. The text tells us in verse 45 that from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness took over the land. Literally, the land, uh, scholars believe, would have been all of Israel was darkened. Now, we need to understand how long it was darkened. From the uh, sixth hour to, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. What that would have meant is that uh, we have 6 a.m. is the Jewish time when the day would begin. And then from 6 a.m., we know that Jesus was crucified around 9 o'clock in the morning. And then darkness came at 12 o'clock. And from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, darkness took place. Now, liberal theologians say it was an eclipse. On that day, when Jesus was being hung on the cross, there was a celestial undertaking taking place, and there was an eclipse. I would agree with them, but I would not say it happens per chance. Another one said it was just a mere coincidence. Something happened. It was great cloud cover, one liberal theologian said, that darkened the area. But we believe it was a message from God. Anytime you see darkness in the Bible, it almost always means an impending judgment taking place. God was about to judge His Son for our sins. The text tells us in Exodus 10.21 that the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness will spread over all of Egypt. A darkness that can be felt. I don't know about you, but have you ever experienced a darkness that can be felt? Have you ever found yourself so low? Have you ever found yourself that you could, you could cut the darkness with a pair of scissors? You just see that there's nothing out there. It's an abyss of darkness before you. This is the kind of darkness that we're seeing in a physical realm. Amos 8, 9, the great minor prophet said, In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. The Lord's doing something here. This is an amazing day in God's redemptive calendar. And he finds himself darkening Israel because he says judgment is a coming. John Stott said on that day, on that fateful day, our sins blotted out the sun. I like that. What an incredible description of what our sin does. But notice there's a second thing. We see the sun, S-U-N, and then we have the sun, S-O-N. It involves the sun. And we see that involves three things, because when he cries out this cry, we see Jesus in his humanity entering the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus is in a valley of despair. Jesus finds himself under distress. 
He finds himself struggling to breathe at every moment. And he cries out this phrase. Politicians will tell us many times about their humble beginnings. They'll tell us about how they started, even though they're mostly millionaires now. They will tell you, I started in a little place called Hope. They'll tell you they started out as mill workers, that their parents didn't have floors. We've heard all those things. And what do they want you to understand? And while most of them may be true, they want you to know they can, as one politician said, I can feel your pain. And we sit there and we see them and many of them living in the lap of luxury. So how can you feel my pain? How can you know what it's like to not have money? How can you know what it's like not to have insurance? But I want to tell you something. Jesus Christ came. And Jesus Christ came as the God-man. And the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.15, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as you are, yet without sin. I want you to know something. You who are low this morning, you who feel forsaken by God or by others, Christ feels your pain. And take that depression and you take that longing and you take that uh, anger and, and, and concern about everybody leaving you and you put that at the throne of Jesus Christ because He was forsaken and He was able to move through that, to be resurrected and to be able to sit at the right hand of the Father this morning. Well, why is the Son involved? Where, where does this pain come from? We see this valley involve physical pain. Physical pain. We know at this point that Jesus had been on the cross for three plus hours. We know that at, at the point Jesus had been involved in beatings. He had had the crown that he had to carry up to Golgotha. We know that he had had his beard pulled at. He had been punched in the face. He had been whipped. We know the crown of thorns had been pushed into his skull. We know that he had nails in his hands and his feet. We know that, as I've shared with you before, for the very opportunity to breathe hanging on that cross, he would have to press up and pull up, press up on his feet, pull up on his arms just to breathe because he was literally being suffocated on the cross of Christ. This valley involved physical pain. It involved the pain that he would have, the epitome of pain. Every part of his body hurt. He was hurting in every way with no relief in sight. Many historians say that people that were crucified would cry out in a loud voice, but they would cry out, let me die. But that's the thing about crucifixions. They were brutal. They wouldn't allow the person to die because they wanted to torture the individual. So men would be crucified for hours until finally their body would just give up. We find Jesus at this moment hanging on that cross and we find Him literally dying for us. We see another thing, and that involves psychological ploys. We uh, many times find ourselves focusing on the physical. We have all watched The, the Passion of, the, of Christ by Mel Gibson. And we've seen with incredible uh, blood and gore what Christ possibly could have endured. What we know of what Roman executions look like. When we focus in on that, but there's far more to it than just the physical. 
We see that in the psychological. In Matthew 15, 31 through 36, it says that he was being taunted. Think about it. You're hanging on a cross. Just leave me alone. Let me die alone. And yet there are people there that are looking at him and taunting him with all kinds of statements. We find him being taunted by a crowd. And he is involved in not only physical pain, but the pain of the psyche, of the soul. In fact, in Mark, team, uh, Mark 14, 34, it says that he was sorrowful unto death. In the garden, he finds himself sweating blood because of the agony that he's facing. This is not just physical pain, but this is psychological as well. He had been betrayed by one who had spent time with him. He had been deserted by eleven who said they would never leave him. And they go taking off running at the first sign of trouble. He finds himself alone. He's just announced to one of his disciples who has come back, the Apostle John. He hands over his mother to the Apostle John, as we learned about last week. This guy, Jesus, has a lot going on. And he is about to die, and he finds himself with no one around, and he's even taking care of his mother at the last moment. We focus on the physical, but there was the psychological as well. It's amazing. Calvin, John Calvin, the great reformer, said if Christ had just died a bodily death, it would have been ineffectual. Unless his soul had shared in our punishment, he would have been redeemer of bodies alone. In consequence, he paid a greater and more excellent price in the suffering of his soul. The terrible torments of a condemned and forsaken man. I want you to make everything understandable today. Make this be it. Jesus Christ was abandoned by his Father. And that broke Christ's heart. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The final thing we see this morning is it involved a paternal purpose. It involved a paternal purpose. Why is this happening? What's going on? Did, did someone screw something up? Was Jesus crying out to God as Jim Lovell did in the Apollo 13 mission? Houston, we have a problem. Father, we missed it. What, what's this about, Father? I didn't see this coming. I didn't know you were going to forsake me. I'm so glad that we have prophecy that announces what God's plans and intentions were. Because if we didn't, we would come to this text and we would wonder, what happened? What went wrong? Why is my Savior, the righteous one, announcing that He's being forsaken by the Father? And we see what the plan was. Because Jesus and the Father were on the same page. They knew what was going on. It was planned in eternity past. It was announced in the garden. Genesis 3.15 tells us that the serpent would crush the Messiah's... I'm sorry, the, the serpent would uh, strike the heel of the Messiah, but the Messiah, Jesus, would, uh, would crush Satan's head. We see that announced. Isaiah 53.10, hard words for us to swallow. Listen to what Isaiah 53.10 says. It was the Lord's will... It was the Lord's will. I want you to say that with me. It was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. Who's that about? It's about Jesus. It was the Lord's will that the Father would crush his son and cause him to suffer. Why? Why would God do that? 
We're going to learn here in a moment. What do we apply from this first point this morning? The first application this morning is very simple. Maybe today you're in a a season of darkness. Maybe you find yourself because of physical pain. There are some here today that are in physical pain. You have some sort of disease, some sort of struggle or ailment, and you find yourself feeling forsaken by God. God, it hurts too much. I just want to die. Look to Christ. He didn't quit. Look to Christ. He went back to His Father. Some of you are struggling with psychological problems and issues and ailments. And you find yourself being taunted by individuals. You find yourself being mocked by people. And you just, you just want to be done with all of it. Look to Jesus. He persevered. But under that, remember that all these things, I've told you before, every trial and tribulation that we face, please remember this church, that Jesus Christ allows them. They must pass His desk. Every trial that you face, every disease that comes, the Lord must allow those things to come into your life. And go to Him and say, Lord, what are you wanting me to learn? What are you wanting me to understand? Jesus gives us a picture of great suffering here and how to suffer well. Second point this morning is that we see a sudden desertion. We see a sudden desertion. The darkness comes. It covers all of Israel. And we find then Jesus being deserted. The darkness doesn't seem to bother Jesus. He doesn't say anything about the darkness. He doesn't say, Father, why did you turn the light switch off? He doesn't say anything like that. But something takes place because he cries out, why have you forsaken me? But notice in this desertion, there's no angelic announcement about it. There are no whistles that go bum, 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 bum. Father forsakes son. Nothing. Now we've seen the father forsake human beings before. The great passage in the Old Testament speaking of Samson. The great strong man with the long hair. He looked a lot like me without hair. Samson. We all got it. You guys got it now. The Bible says Samson's just kicking the tail and, and, uh, and the tar out of uh, the Philistines. And then he hooks up with a woman named Delilah. And what happens? She starts conjuring up uh, uh, ways to try to find out the secret to his success. And what takes place? She cuts his hair. Hair is where the strength was, by the power of God. And what does the Bible say? That the Spirit of God left Samson. And Samson didn't even know it. Samson was so caught up in his sin, he didn't even know the Spirit had left him. There are some here this morning, we're so involved in our sin that we don't even know where the presence of God is at in our lives. But not so with our Savior. Amidst the physical pain, amidst the psychological pain, amidst the darkness, something transpires that the Son looks to heaven and He sees that His Father has left Him. What an absurd thought. God forsaking His Son. The Son who is perfect. The Son uh, who uh, was righteous in all ways, pure in all ways. I was thinking about that. I wrote this in my, in my notes as I was thinking about my two sons. And my sons are by no means perfect. You know that. There would be a hearty amen for especially the oldest one. And I could not fathom forsaking my children. I couldn't think about it. I don't care what they would have done. 
I don't, if they would have come and, and said that they were behind terrible and, atro- and great atrocities, I don't know how I could give up on my sons. I'd love them. I'd pray for them and I'd minister to them. Why? Because I love them. The Bible says that the Father loves the Son. And yet the Son, where there was no sin to be found in Him, let this sink into our hearts this morning, abandoned His Son because of you and me. He forsook Him. He abandoned. This is out of character for the Father. Luke 3.22, the Father says, This is My Son in whom I am well pleased. John 15.9, As the Father has loved Me, Jesus says, I now love you with a perfect love. John 17.21, Father, You are in Me and I am in You. And we find in Matthew 27, none of that. We find the Father forsaking the Son. What did that? What caused that? There are three things this morning I want you to look at. First of all, we see the purity of God. We see the purity of God. Why does God abandon Jesus? Because He had to. The Father had to abandon the Son. Why? Because God is holy. He's set apart from anything that is not holy. We see that throughout the Old Testament. That the Father is completely righteous. On the cross, we see Jesus Christ becoming unrighteous. The perfect lamb that was slain now became sin. And that's when God left. This is a response that happened numerous times. Individuals that ran into the holiness of God. In Genesis 18:27, Abraham spoke up. Now that I've been so bold to speak to the Lord, now I know I am nothing but dust and ashes. Job 42.6, Therefore I despise myself after seeing the Lord in His holiness. I'm sorry, Job, seeing His holiness, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah in that great Isaiah chapter 6 where he sees the holiness of the Lord and the angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah says, Woe to me, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Daniel said, I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. I like what Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 1.13, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, for you cannot tolerate wrong. We believe with all our hearts in the holiness of God. That God is completely holy. Why did God forsake His Son? Because He's a holy God. And a holy God cannot look upon sin. If we don't understand that uh, that, uh, attribute of God, we will not understand this cry from the cross. The second thing we see is not only the purity of God, but we also see the penalty of sin. We see the penalty of sin. David got this. David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in verse 3, he says, you are enthroned as the Holy One. Holiness set apart from sin. Christ became sin on our behalf and we see the penalty of sin. So what happens? We learn what Romans 6.23 tells us. For the wage of sin is death. Why is Christ on the cross? Because He's paying for our wage of sin. 
But not just a physical death. We know that physical death was a uh, consequence of sin. We saw that in the uh, burning of Sodom and Gomorrah. We saw that in the plagues of Egypt. We saw that when it came to Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. We saw that in Achan's sin in the book of Joshua. We saw that in the New Testament with Ananias and Sapphira. God hates sin and he judges it as death. He says that's the sentence. I watched a man this week in uh, the Orlando airport on TV. This man from Ohio, this uh, uh, police officer that killed uh, his girlfriend and their uh, unborn baby. And I watched a man with horror in his eyes wondering what the uh, verdict would be. And his eyes, I remember just rolling, wondering what must be going through his head. Here in our day and age, we can watch a man learn if he's going to live or die. And here I am just finishing up a trip to Walt Disney World and I'm watching on TV a sentence from a judge to a man who says, the jury says, you will not die, but you'll spend the rest of your life in prison. We don't have human judges that judge our sin, but God does. And God doesn't say, you know what, it's 20 years and maybe get out for good, uh, good works and good uh, behavior. But what does he say? Every time he takes the stamp, the celestial stamp, and he puts it on our account and says, you will die for your sin. The penalty of sin, the reason why Jesus was forsaken was Christ took that penalty on our behalf. He became a curse, the book of Galatians says. He became a curse. He was hung out on a tree outside the city, alienated by man, alienated by God. And that's the bad news of the gospel, even though the gospel is good news. I've told you time and time again, to have good news, you must have bad news. The good news is God is holy. The bad news is we are sinful. We've got a problem. And because of that sin, we have a death penalty that we cannot get out of. Here's the gospel. The gospel is the perseverance of Christ. Write that down. The perseverance of Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Please don't think this is a a prayer of distrust. Jesus isn't saying to his Father, what are you doing? Why? I don't understand this. He's not crying out that. He's crying out, not in distrust, A.W. Pink says, but in distress. He's hurting. His humanity is crying out to his God. Jesus was living out Psalm 22, 4 and 5. In our fathers, in you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and you were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But notice something. David says that they were delivered. David says, even though he cries in Psalm 22, 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken? In a couple moments, he finds out, but you deliver. You've delivered our fathers. You've taken care of us in our time of need. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, cries it out, and there is silence. There's silence. Does Jesus get up and does he step off the cross? The Bible says that people said, hey, what is he saying? He's talking to Elijah. He wants Elijah to help him out. And they start taunting him and start saying, Hey, if you're the Christ, then cry out to God and let him get you out of this mess. If if you're the Christ, then cry out to Elijah. He'll come and save you. I want you to notice something very clearly. And that is, is that they were speaking words of Satan, the crowd. 
Because if you look at Matthew chapter 4, what do you see? In one of the temptations of Jesus Christ, what does the devil say? Throw yourself down from the temple. And the Lord won't allow, God won't allow His Holy One's foot to even touch the ground, for angels will come and lift Him up. What is the devil trying to work through the crowd? Get off that cross, Jesus. I dare you. Get off the cross. It's too hard, Jesus. Get off the cross. Let, G- let God save you. Your Father's there. He'll save you. Elijah will save you. Someone will save you. Just get off the cross, Jesus. There's some of you that are hearing those words today. Stop living the Christian life. God's done nothing for you. He's abandoned you. He's left you. Give up. Come follow me. You'll have the joys unspeakable and the pleasures of the world. You don't have to live this way. What's God done for you? It's not in the Bible. It's Tim's speculation. It'll come out in Zondervan's uh, new Tim Bedall study Bible. We're, we're not too happy with the sales up to this point. But my speculation is, is that the devil was crying out to Jesus. What has your father done for you? He won't even listen to you. Look, his back is turned. You call him your father? What kind of father leaves his son in the greatest hour of danger? You've got to be kidding me, Jesus. Again, my translation. You've got to be kidding me. He's no father. And yet, what do we see? Does Christ shout out words of cursing? Does Christ put God the Father to a test? Does Christ do anything but cry out to His Father? He says, my God, my God. He's still connected, my friends. He's still connected to the only source that He had in that moment. And He cries out to the Father. I love what Hebrews chapter 12 says. Let's turn there for a moment. We, we don't read usually Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, verses 2 through 4, we get caught up in the first couple verses of uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 12. And we don't move on to those thir- third and fourth verses. Hebrews chapter 12. This is what our text says. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. The writer of Hebrews is saying, get focused the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before Him endured the cross. There's the perseverance. He endured the cross amidst the taunting, amidst the forsaking of the Father. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. It was a shameful thing to be crucified, and He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now listen to what it says. Consider Him. Get focused on Him again. Think about Him who endured such opposition from sinful men, that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now notice what verse 4 says. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Those are powerful words for us to hear. When we're ready to give up and lose hope because we feel like God has forsaken us, the Bible says, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus who endured. Consider Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. My brothers and sisters, when cancer comes, when trials come, when demonic oppression comes, when issues of questions in our mind and doubts take place, my friends, consider Jesus who endured such opposition. Because you want to know what will happen? We will not, the Bible says, grow weary and lose heart. 
That's how we get through trials. Because we watch the Savior who is forsaken in that way do that. We see the holiness of God, the purity of God, the penalty of sin, the perseverance of Christ. What what does this all lead to? One final thing. And that is a spiritual deliverance. A spiritual deliverance. We need to understand what takes place this morning as we look at this text. Is Christ being forsaken? He's being delivered from sin. And what does it involve? Folks, it involves the person and work of Christ. It's the person of Jesus Christ. The minor prophet Nahum asked a question. And the question in Nahum 1.6 was this. Who can withstand God's holy indignation? Who can endure His fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before Him. Who is able to deal with the wrath of God? All of the sins were placed on Jesus Christ. Every kind of sin was placed on Christ. I was looking at a website, and a pastor had over a hundred sins listed. And I was showing Amanda them, and she says, but he missed this one, and this one, and this one, and this one. It is not comprehensive. Hundreds of sins that you and I have committed were placed on the cross of Jesus Christ, on His back. And who could handle that? I couldn't. You couldn't. I would have to pay for my own sin. And I would die for one. You would die for one. Christ died for many, the New Testament says, that we might be found in God. He died for many. How could He do that? Luther rejoiced in this fact when he wrote the great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. In the second verse, Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? At Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabbath, His name, from age to age the same. And He will win the battle. Why are we delivered from our sin? Because Jesus Christ is the one who went to the cross. That's why we celebrate things like communion. Because we remember the person and work of Jesus Christ. Also, we must remember the payment for sin. Christ had to be forsaken. He had to give up His life. Why? Because sin had to be paid for. We will soon hear Him cry out, It is finished. It is paid in full. The glorious thing that we hear is because Jesus being the perfect God-man, the perfect Passover Lamb, the great thing about that is, is for a moment He is forsaken. But the Bible says that He was then enthroned at the right hand of the Father and that He suffered and died once for the remission of sin and then He took His place at the throne of God. We serve a mighty God. We sing a song, He is mighty to save. He was forsaken for a moment, but He is now enthroned forever. The final thing that we see this morning is it involves a promise to all. There's a promise to all, this phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First of all, to those who have never trusted Christ, the sinner in our midst. There's something we see in this text this morning that should be fearful in our hearts. And that is, if you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, God's not done being out of the forsaken business yet. Matthew chapter 7, verse 22 and 23 says that many on the judgment day will come to the Father and say, Lord, Lord, did I not cast out demons? Did I not heal and prophesy in your name? I did all these great things. But what does 
the text say? Depart from me. I never knew you. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior this morning, if you've never placed your trust in the forsaken Christ, then there is a day coming where you will be forsaken by the Father. And not for a moment, my friends, but for all eternity. And that sudden darkness, that that season of darkness that we saw, the Bible says that we will be cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that darkness is found in a place called hell. Don't leave this place this morning without going to that forsaken one and saying, as the great song says, I was forsaken, or you were forsaken, that I could be accepted. You were condemned. And go to Jesus and say, Jesus, without you, without you dying on the cross, I will be forsaken. And I don't want to be forsaken. I want to place my trust in Jesus Christ because I need to be holy so that I can be with a holy God for all eternity. There's a promise for us as saints as well. And I want us to come to the table with this thought this morning. And that is found in Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Turn in your Bibles there for a moment. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. For us who come around this table, we remember the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we wonder about those words. We ponder those words. And I'm glad those words are not for me. At the moment that I bowed the knee to Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of my life, this is what my Father in heaven said. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? If you've trusted Christ as your Savior today, as we come to the table this morning, as all the believers in this place partake of communion, I want us to meditate on those words. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Where are you at this morning? Are you in the pit of sin, finding yourself struggling and feeling like, I can't get over this? The Bible says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and I am your helper. Turn to Him with your sin. Maybe you're struggling this morning, struggling with the issues of circumstances surrounding your life. The Bible says to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am your helper. I'm so glad, and I hope you are as well, that we rejoice in a forsaken Christ. That He was given up on our behalf. That we may come around the table. When, when Jesus was dealing with the first uh, time, uh, at the, la- the first commemoration of the Last Supper, We see Jesus speaking a lot in John 14, saying, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. And then he begins to talk about preparing a place. And in John 15, we see him talking at the end of 14 and 15 about how the Helper is going to come. And we rejoice in the helping of the Holy Spirit who comes. Why? Because Jesus did go to prepare a place for us. But He will never leave us nor forsake us. And my friends, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have the Spirit of Almighty God indwelling you. And He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. 
and He'll watch over you. The Lord is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. Why can we apply those verses to us? Because Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let me pray. Men, come forward as we pass the elements. Father God, we come to a time now where we remember that you were forsaken. We remember that you were condemned. We remember that you were put on a cross to be a curse so that we might be saved. Oh, Father, I pray that as we gather around this table, that we would remember this cry from the cross, that it would burn in our hearts. We're not forsaken because you were. And Lord, that we would rejoice that we are found in you, that you take care of us and you sustain us and you minister to us. Father, that we would proclaim from the rooftops that we are not forsaken. We are not abandoned. We have Almighty God within us by the Spirit. And that because of Him we can live and have our being and we can bring glory and honor to You and proclaim Your name to all the nations that salvation is found in the forsaken person of Jesus Christ. But Lord, we rejoice. We rejoice in the fact that that forsaking was for a moment and now You are enthroned in Your righteousness and Your holiness and You are sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth, Your glory, fills our world. We love You. And we give this time of communion to You in Jesus' name. Amen.